The New Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, it's verses 17 through 48, which is found on page 3 of your pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew 5, 17 through 48. Do not think that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her, a, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil." You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love the, those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Let's pray together as we sit. So, Father, our prayer today is that we would have ears to hear your word and hearts that are humbled by your grace to us. Have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and help us today to be those who are transformed by your spirit as he takes your word today, humbles us, and makes us into the image of your son whose glory we seek and in whose precious name we pray, amen. It's always painful to think that you're doing so well when the reality is that you're not. And I'll never forget the day when the bar results came out after the bar exam papers that I'd sat in London. I raced to the college on the Strand, my heart pounding within me, and I got to the board. There must have been about 300 people. I worked through the scrum and the crowd, and uh, there I found my name, A. Jones. And next to my name was the result I was looking for, the top results, outstanding. My mind raced to the incredible legal career that lay ahead of me. Problem was, the middle initial T wasn't there, which I thought was a little bit odd. And though, just to double check, I, I looked again at the board, uh, A, T, Jones, there was quite a few Joneses there, which was quite annoying. So I made my way down about 20, and then I found another person, A, T, Jones. The poor guy hadn't got an outstanding like me. He'd got a not competence. And then the penny dropped. He was me. Outstanding. A.T. Jones, not competent. I was a fail. I'd passed all the papers, but not this one. It was a devastating moment as my heart collapsed into my stomach. It's very embarrassing, isn't it, to think that you're an amazing success, outstanding, when the reality is, as far as the bar of England and Wales with that one paper was concerned, I was a fail. Happy to tell you I soon reset the paper and passed with the correct result. But this morning as we turn to the Sermon on the Mounts, as we continue in our sermon series, in this the most famous sermon ever, Something of that emotion is going to be ours. Only what it's at stake, what's at stake is not entry to the bar of England and Wales, but entry into the kingdom of heaven. For to secure admission into the kingdom of God demands 100% pure perfection. And if you look at verse 20 and then down to verse 48, you'll see that our section is sandwiched by two commands, which form a frame around which we are to work this morning. 
a frame or a sandwich around our material. Verse 20, Jesus says, for unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But hang on, we might be thinking for just a moment, that's a very high standard and it's a standard we cannot attain. Aren't we in a new age? A.D., Anastomini, the age of the Lord, the age of grace. Is it really the case that God demands perfection of us? Hasn't the law somehow been diluted? The commands of God watered down. The standard of God lowered. And Jesus' answer comes for us in verse 7. No, don't presume that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish but to fulfill, verse 18, for truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of the law, not the smallest letter shall pass until it is all accomplished. The law that Jesus is talking about here is the law of Sinai. And it stands as a picture of the perfection of God, of his eternal character. The law, if you like, is God's self-expression of himself. And just as God's character never changes, so the law cannot change. The law, if you like, functions as a mirror of the character of God's, a permanent reflection of the unchanging character of God's. So just as God's character can't be changed, muted, revised, or updated, so the mirror picture of God's character in his law can't be cancelled, muted, revised, or updated. Because God always speaks consistent with himself, his word is a perfect manifestation of his character. So for his law to change must mean that he must change, which is impossible. None of the law can be cancelled, says Jesus, not the smallest letter or stroke. Jesus here picks the smallest letters in the Hebrew alphabets, the iota, the smallest stroke of the pen, or the uh, tittle, a tiny dash. None of them, nothing within the law can be amended, nullified, watered down, or diluted. The law of God can never be cancelled by an executive order. It can't be annulled or appealed by the Supreme Court. God's words, God's law, stands forever. And Jesus says as much in Matthew 25. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But this raises a massive roadblock for us. Because if the perfect law of God stands forever and must be obeyed perfectly forever, if the bar of entry into the kingdom of God is perfection, it is a massive roadblock for us. Because the demands of God's law are impossible, the burden of our guilt is unbearable, And the judgment we will face must be eternal. 
And this takes us to the very heart of a tension that lies within the gospel, which we'll think about in just a moment or two. But what the Pharisees did as they tried to get around this roadblock was to try and bring the standard of God's law down to their level. So they took the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, and then they developed a whole series of case law which made keeping those commands easy. As we obeyed the little rules and regulations of first century Pharisaism, we were deceived into thinking we could, after all, obey all 613 commands of the Old Testament. I'll never forget growing up as a little boy. I must have been six or seven. And up in the attic, my father had a measuring stick. And we would go up every week, and he'd measure my growth and then chalk it on the wall. I was desperate to grow up taller and was paranoid that I was going to be short as uh, a grown-up. I kept saying, I don't want to be a little man. Um, I think at uh, 5'12", I'm precisely standard for the United States of America. I've checked that recently. But I was terrified and paranoid about being a little man. And so desperate was I to grow and make progress, two things followed. The first was I would... uh, sort of stand on uh, heels up to try and get the mark slightly higher than it was. And even later on, go up and chalk out and then re-chalk slightly higher uh, on the wall. Amending the standard, changing the height to make myself look better or higher or greater or bigger than I really was. Now, all of us do this when it comes to God's law. That's the mark of pharisaical religion, to puff ourselves up, to make ourselves feel better and look better and more righteous than we really are. And therefore, what Jesus is about to do this morning is incredibly painful. As he brings the law of God to bear, to bring us down to size. Uh, Warning, some hearers may find the following distressing. As the law of God is brought to bear in our hearts, we will leave this building thinking, what a wretch, what a worm, what a failure, what a horror story I really am. But Jesus' aim is loving. As he takes us from the fake pharisaical righteousness of the mask as we pretend to be better than we are to the real righteousness of the cross because the great good news of Christianity is that Jesus has died for our sins at Calvary and through his shed blood and broken body we can be perfect verse 48 as our heavenly father is perfect But that perfection doesn't come from an artificial, fake perfection, an act. It comes as we stop the act, fall on our knees at the cross, and turn to Jesus Christ as broken sinners at the end of ourselves. In the Old Testament, the law was a temporary device put in charge at Sinai to lead us to Christ. So Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
because he stands as the terminus of the law. If you get on New Jersey Transit, it will take you all the way to Penn Station in New York. The tracks lead you there. It's the end point. It's the terminal or the terminus. As you read the law and the prophets, all of them in different ways were like tracks converging but leading to one place, one spot, one end, the terminal or the terminus of Christ. Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law because the law stands as the eternal mirror image, the reflection of the character of God. But he has come to fulfill the law in two senses. First, as he keeps the perfection of the law in his own life because he never sins. And second, he keeps the law in the sense that he pays the price. He pays the penalty as he takes the burden of your guilt for you at Calvary. But the law is a temporary device. It's like a teacher in school uh, teaching the classroom, the, the ignorant students of the full demands of God's word. Or, or it's like a mirror, the law of God's. So you think you look great as you head off to some business meeting, but before you go in, you look in the mirror, and there's a, there's a sort of egg stain on, on your tie. And then you think, oh, my hair looks really greasy. And then there's dandruff on your uh, shoulder. And you see the psoriasis or something like that, which looks really grim. And then there's a hole in your shirts. And you thought you looked great, but the law of God, the mirror, shows you as you really are. Or perhaps it's the MRI scan. I think I'm healthy and fit, but I go into the doctor and he says, well, there's bad news and we've got the scans because the tumor has spread. And then he shows you scan by scan and then says you need chemo and radiotherapy if you're going to live. So this morning I've got two questions. Here's the first. Have you received the results and then second, it's going to be, will you accept the treatment plan? Have you received the results, the scan of God's law of our hearts? Because in verse 21 down to verse 48, it's as if Jesus shows us the results. He shows us who we really are inside. Here's the first result, verse 21, hatreds. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court, and everybody who says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's the sixth commandments don't murder. The death penalty applied. But here in a radical reinterpretation of the sixth command, Jesus takes us from the acts to the attitudes. You may know that in common law, there are two elements to every offense. There is what's called the actus reus, which is Latin for the guilty acts. And then there is the mens rea, which is Latin 
for the guilty mind. So for a crime, there needs to be a guilty act and the intent of a guilty mind. And Jesus here is looking beyond the actus reus, the guilty act, to the mens rea, the guilty mind, to the malice of forethought in our hearts. Verse 22, did you know that most murders are just acts of hatred that go wrong? And the picture here is of an escalating offense. First, there's anger in my heart. And then that anger in my heart breaks out in verbal abuse. You idiot. But it's all on the same continuum. The same continuum of the heart of hatred becomes the verbal abuse, which eventually becomes the acts of murder. Have you ever met a murderer? I have on a number of occasions. In fact, I've represented some. In fact, one of my clients was an 18-year-old, a very nice, respectable kid. His name was Jamie Arcourt. He was part of a gang who had murdered a black kid in Eltham, South London, in 1993. And I hadn't realized it, but the murder of Stephen Lawrence, he had murdered him, was to become the most sensational murder in the history of Britain ever. You can Google it later on, murder of Stephen Lawrence. It was our, it was our George Floyd. And my client had uh, taken the knife in a gang of five and had killed him. And I sat in the cells of Greenwich uh, Court, uh, sitting next to this kid. He was a bit like the artful dodger, very charming, very well-spoken, very nice. And I sat there thinking, I am sitting in a cell with a murderer. But actually, you're sitting in a building next to a murderer too. In fact, you are a murderer says Jesus. Because the same hatred that ended up killing Stephen Lawrence in South London in 1993 is precisely the same hatred and malice that is in my heart. For as I look at myself in the mirror, says Jesus, I'm looking at a murderer. Is there anger in your heart? Perhaps at a co-worker or a parent? Is there anger in your heart at a spouse or a neighbor? Is there anger in your heart at the leadership of this church or at somebody in this church? Is there anger in your heart on the roads? Is there anger in your heart? How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty as charged. And it's so serious, says Jesus in verse 23, as he switches from the plural to the singular, we have to do everything we can to avoid this hatred festering. So if there is somebody with whom we are upset, we need to put it right. We need to meet with the plaintiff before we get to the courts. Because if we do get to court, it's possible that the plaintiff will sue us. No, leave your offering at the altar, suspend the offering plates, says Jesus. Make up with the antagonist. Do all you can to find peace and reconciliation because this, this anger left festering 
Jesus says, leads to the hellfire of eternal damnation. The second scan of our hearts that the specialist doctor Jesus has, verse 27, is impurity. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. God is a God of covenant faithfulness. So we are to be a people of marital faithfulness. The lust here is a a look of yearning and longing, of desire and craving. This inward desire, Jesus says, is on the same continuum of adultery itself. The attitude is on the same spectrum as the acts. Within our culture, sexual impurity is normal. It is part of the air that we breathe. It's part of the movies we watch. It's part of the internet that we look at, but not before God. The God of purity detests impurity, and so much we. Um, Africa's mighty Zambezi is the fourth largest river after the Nile, uh, the uh, Niger and the Congo. And it ends in the stunning Victoria Falls. And if you go there, you, you see just the cascading volume of water. It is unbelievable to look at. But the source of that is a tiny little bubbling stream, a spring, 1,500 meters above sea level in a remote part of northwestern Zambia. The affair, uh, the crash, but it starts, you see, way upstream, doesn't it, in the impurity, in the secrecy of my own hearts and my own life. And that's why we're called not to be just an outwardly upright people, but an inwardly uh, pure people. We must guard our eyes and our hearts. We have to take care how we relate and in how we dress. And it is a sign of our compromise as a Christian culture how words like mortification of sin are no longer used. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Self-satisfaction, smugness, and glibness are the very antithesis of the New Testament doctrine of holiness. Here we see holiness as a matter of the heart and not merely as a matter of conduct. It is not only in a man's deeds, but in his desires. It's not only in what we mustn't do, but what we must do. We must not covet. This penetrates the very depths. The very conception of holiness leads us to constant watchfulness and self-examination. Search your hearts and ask, is there any evil 
in there. And in his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen puts it like this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. For the lustful heart deserves judgments. A graphic picture of self-mutilation. That's worth doing to avoid, says Jesus, the hell of fire. Third scan of our hearts comes in verse 31 as Jesus takes us to divorce. Whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Many Pharisees in the ancient world believed that a husband could divorce his wife for any or any reason. There were two schools of pharisaical thoughts. But the school of Hillel taught that a certificate of divorce could be given for pretty much any reason. So you get home and she's spoilt the dinner, she's burnt it again. He could go to the synagogue and get a certificate of divorce. Because God is faithful to his covenant promises, we must be faithful to ours. We must be faithful in our marriages, business deals, and in all the commitments we make. Anything short of that is to fall short of the perfect standard of God's. Verse 33, scan four of our hearts, says Jesus, trustworthiness. Again, you've heard that it was said by the ancients, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it's the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. In the ancient world, um, if you were making a business deal, uh, you'd have to swear an oath that you were going to pay back the debt or whatever it was. And the bigger the promise, the bigger the oath that was required. So if you're buying a car, you might go down to the dealer, the Honda dealer, or you would make a promise. And then you would say, I, I will make my repayments. And you would say, I swear by Jerusalem. If it was a bigger promise, maybe in marriage, you'd say, I, I swear by the earth. And if it was a massive promise, maybe you were borrowing 300 million or something like that, you'd say, I, I swear by heaven itself. And the swearing of the oath acted as a guarantee of the faithfulness of the promise. In fact, people still do it today. They say, well, I'll pay you back, cross my heart, hope to die. I, I promise on my life or on my father's grave. What Jesus is saying here is that we ought not to make oaths because oaths ought not to be necessary 
because we ought to be known as people of integrity, so that when we say something, it is true. We don't need to say, by heaven or on my life, because our words should be true. Our promises should be kept. We ought to be known as people of integrity. And yet, as we get to the New Testament and to Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, quoting the psalm, says, all men are liars, because the reality is every single one of us in this room has lied, and we do lie. We exaggerate the truth, we manipulate the truth, we distort the truth. All of us are liars in our hearts. And Jesus says this comes of evil origin. Literally, it comes from the evil one. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Jesus says, guilty as charged. Scan 5, verse 38, and revenge. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. It's hard, but probably one of the most unpleasant characters in all of Shakespeare, surely, is the Jewish merchant Shylock from the Merchant of Venice. Wronged by the Christian Antonio, he demands his pound of flesh in that horrible speech. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us Jews, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? And the dagger is handed to him as if here you are. Now get your pound of flesh from Christian Antonio. But this desire for revenge drives us. It's in our hearts so deep, isn't it? Actually, virtually every relationship that goes wrong, be it geopolitically, Israel and Palestine, or down to the family feud, has this dynamic at work. If you've seen the movie Kramer versus Kramer, there it is, or the awful movie Fatal Attraction, there it is, the destructive power of revenge. In verse 38, Jesus isn't saying, turn a blind eye to criminal activity. He's not saying we shouldn't expose wrong, but he is saying that when we are wounded, we ought not to take revenge. The picture is extraordinary. If they slap you on one cheek, turn the next. And isn't that what Jesus did at the cross? As they take your cloak, give them your tunic as well. And if this isn't convicting enough, then the command is even more extraordinary as Jesus moves from the negative, don't take revenge, to the positive, love your enemy. 
Most of us find it hard to love our friends and family at times. It is sometimes hard to love a spouse or parents or kids. How can we be expected to love our enemies? Because we resent them. We hate them for what they've done to us. But this command becomes all the more extraordinary when you discover that the Greek word that Jesus uses for love your enemy isn't the Greek word Philadelphia, meaning the brotherly love. The word he chooses to use of love for enemy is the sacrificial word agape, which is a love deep and radical that in sacrifice knows no limits. Is there somebody who's wronged you? Is there somebody you're really angry about in your life? Not only are you to turn the other cheek, you are to love them, not with a kind of general love, but with an agape, a deep, sacrificial love that says to them, no matter how you insult me, injure me, or destroy me, I won't hold it against you, but I will love you to death. Because that's the pattern, isn't it, of the cross of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about this as he's put into the concentration camp by the Nazis for his faith. He writes this, Bless them that persecute you. And if our enemy can't put up with us any longer and takes to cursing us, our immediate reaction must be to lift up our hands and bless him. Our enemies are the blessed of the Lord. Their curse can do us no harm. May their poverty be enriched with all the riches of God's with the blessing of him whom they seek to oppose in vain. We are ready to endure their curses so long as they rebound to their blessing. But why must I live like this? And Jesus says, because this is the character of God's. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God blesses righteous and unrighteous people. And at the cross, this is the pattern he sets for us. Because at the cross, we were his enemies. As Luther says, we all had the nails in our pockets. Jesus has shown us his enemies' agape love. And so we delight now to turn and show that love back for their sake. Jesus has these scans for us, and it shows the full malignancy of the evil on the inside. If you like, the prosecution indictment is overwhelming, isn't it? How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Well, I'm guilty as charged. So what's the sentence? Look at verse 22. The fiery hell. Look at verse 29. To be thrown into hell. Look at verse 37. You are evil. Have you accepted the diagnosis? That's the first question. 
And here's the seconds. Will we accept the treatment plan of the cross? There's a painting by Rembrandt, and it's called The Three Crosses. It's of Jesus at Calvary with the two thieves either side of him. And if you look at the painting, you'll see and you'll know from the experts that it is an extraordinary picture, the colors, the weights, the emotion. If you look at the picture, you'll see a crowd is gathered around the cross as they jeer at the death of Jesus at Calvary. And then on the side of the picture is an odd face. In fact, if you look at it, you'll see it is the face of Rembrandt himself. And what Rembrandt is doing in that picture is understanding and communicating that as Jesus dies at the cross, he's implicated. As Luther says, he had the nails in his pockets. Because what Jesus is doing on the cross is bearing the full weight of guilt, bearing the full judgment of God's, taking the full judicial penalty for guilty sinners like us, and says Rembrandt, like me. As somebody once said, Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And the way that Matthew shows us this is very, very clever. I want you to take your Bibles and I want to show you something very exciting as Matthew, this highly sophisticated editor, shows us the gospel of grace. Turn with me to chapter 4, verse 3. And if you want to multitask and turn to chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is how Matthew explains the gospel of grace. Because either sides of the condemnation that comes from the law of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is the picture of grace in the healings of the sick. So what happens before Jesus goes up the mountain, chapter 4, verse 3? Well, all of Galilee uh, is there, and Jesus, news of him is spreading, and verse 25, large crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from the Jordan. Verse 25, if you were a geography student, you'd say, that's the whole of the nation, north, east, south, west, are coming to Jesus. And he heals, which in the Old Testament is the sign of salvation. Go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and see what happens in chapter 7 as he comes down the mountain, verse 1, and verse 2, a man with leprosy came to him and he bowed before him and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, verse 3. Jesus reached out with his hand and he touched him and he said, I'm willing, be cleansed, and immediately his leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Do you see what Matthew is saying? Either side of the sermon that condemns us and shows us how sick we are is the healing. As you look at the scan and you say, that's me, that's me. That, that is what I'm like on the inside. I'm sinful and sick and I'm guilty and condemned. Either side we see the healing of Christ, which is a picture of the uh, forgiveness uh, of God 
for our guilt and our shame. Because the purpose of the law is to drive us to those healings. The purpose of Jesus in his teaching is to drive us to his mercy at the cross. And we've already sung of that in that extraordinary hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, we're naked. Helpless look to thee for grace, you're helpless. Foul I to the fountain fly, I'm foul. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The picture is of the penitent sinner, convicted in their hearts and driven to the gospel of grace. Well, in a moment, we're going to sing of it as we own our sin and say, what a wretch I am, as we marvel at grace. Before we do that, let's pray together as we bow our heads. A moment just to be quiet, to acknowledge our guilt, and to ask Jesus for the forgiveness of his grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, and now I see. We stand to sing.